Rebecca Houghton from Bold HR is our guest on the podcast today. She is the author of the book, Impact, 10 Ways to Level Up Your Leadership. It's fair to say we have plenty of common ground. Learn why being bold, having a clear barometer of your impact, and having some fun along the way are the keys to leadership success. Having worked in senior HR roles at organisations like Australia Post and having coached hundreds of leaders, Rebecca has some practical and actionable insights to share. Hey, Rebecca, welcome along to Business Leader Breakthroughs. Fantastic to join, have you join us on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Ryan. Thank you. Hey, Rebecca, let's hit the fast fact questions up front, get our audience to know you a little bit better. Uh, let's start off with a good old food-based one. Are you a breakfast or a dinner person? Oh, I really love my food. This was a horrible question for you to hit me with. I reckon I'm a dinner person, but, but marginally. Yeah. Marginally. Okay. Mm. And is there something particular on the menu for tonight? Uh, no, but last night was steak night. So we're quite, so we're in lockdown too, just like you. And uh, we're quite enjoying the fact that that means that I can go to our little French bistro in the village and get them to organize amazing steaks. So we had steak bavette with mushroom sauce. It was just amazing. So we both went, we're actually really gonna miss this when lockdown stops. So we're gonna call the chef today and see what the situation will be when we go back to restaurants. <laughs> Can we Absolutely. still get our takeaway? <laughs> yeah, get them get them locked in, I like it. Okay, <laughs> on holiday, Rebecca, would we find you bungee jumping or lying on the pool lounger with cocktail in hand? Oh my God, definitely not bungee jumping. Having been a leader for the last decade, why would you do that to yourself? No, pool lounger, cocktail, book, stop. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what would you be reading? Oh, really eclectic, really eclectic. So probably um, a book on psychology or some psychological research, because I'm a little bit obsessed with the stuff that I do. So that might sound to everyone else like it's boring, but trust me, it's not. Um, and then just to make it amusing, either a really hardcore action thing like a Jack Reacher or something like that, um, or something disgustingly lightweight and flirty. Really depends what mood I'm in. Maybe both at once. Yeah. <laughs> both at once. Yeah. It could be make for an interesting combo, particularly if it was the light and flirty and the psychology all at once. Do they, those things kind of go together, don't they? Yeah, that's really sick and stalkery around. Let's yeah, not go okay. there. Okay, um, now I just feel awkward asking the uh, next question. Would you uh, normally be in trainers or heels? <laughs> oh, God, definitely trainers. You know, I was clearing out the wardrobe the other day. This is another lockdown thing, but clearing out the wardrobe the other day. And I and you may not relate to this, Ryan. It, you, you may. Um, I had a whole load of tights at the back of the wardrobe. I went, oh, my God, who wears tights anymore? I haven't worn a skirt haven't worn a skirt with heels certainly haven't worn tights for probably nearly two years so i think the answer has to be trainers and is that because fashion has moved or because you've not been allowed out of the house for, for that duration? because no one outside my family has seen me from the waist down in almost two years that's why so nobody knows whether i'm wearing pajamas all the time or not as long as the top half is decent we're all okay indeed hey look uh, news readers around the world have been doing it for centuries so uh, <laughs> yeah, if it's good enough for them good enough for us all righty as a uh, author and we're going to dig into your uh, book uh, and find out more about the motivation around why you wrote that and what you learned along the way um, but are you a, a real book or a electronic person oh i'm a real book person and and it might sound like that's a good thing, but the reason is really bad. It's because I write on them. I know that's really bad. I know that is, but I do. I make notes in my books, so I need them to be real. Yeah. 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 Like it. And the big animal question, cats or dogs? Uh, it is both. Currently cats have been 
current have been only dogs, have been only cats, have been both. Right. Okay. Is there a particular reason why you're cycling through them so quickly? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. Can I? Can I <laughs> plead the fifth on that? Can I plead the fifth? Yeah, no, exactly. No. <laughs> no, no. I think what is it at the moment? Actually, one of my boys has a slight allergy to dogs, which is very annoying. But I think he's growing out of it. So the dog, the dog will come back onto the into vogue soon. Yeah. Good yeah. house is not a home without a dog, but I may be slightly biased. Sounds like you might be slightly biased. Slightly biased, yeah. Catch on. <laughs> okay. Um, Routine-wise, are you an early riser or a night owl? Oh, I am neither. I love my sleep. I go to bed early and I wake up as late as I possibly can get away with. I love well, my sleep. Yeah. Well rejuvenated. I like yeah. It. yeah, it's where I get all my energy from, I reckon. I, I can be pretty much guaranteed I'll be snoozing on the sofa by about 9, 9.30. Yep. And whilst I'm, I kind of am awake, I'm in complete denial. I'm awake at around six, but I'm in complete denial till about half past seven. Right. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so after a, a good, a good steak dinner, uh, immediately followed by a snooze on the couch is kind of the ideal evening. Oh, absolutely. Sounds great. Doesn't it? Isn't that everyone's <laughs> ideal evening? <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll park that one there. And uh, given the, um, diversity of your book reading that you've already uh, led us into about i'm interested around entertainment i'm sensing it's going to be like every genre possible but if you had to choose between a, a thriller or a comedy where would you go oh god that is so hard left to my own devices i think it will probably be a thriller but it can't be scary there's a fine line i can't do scary films i'm terrible but I do like a thriller. I like something really intelligent and thought-provoking and I love a devious twist. Um, but yeah, I can't be doing with scary things. So if it's too suspenseful, right. yeah, cinematically, okay. I just, I just, yeah, I can't do it. It's the adrenaline, you see. That's why I don't bungee jump as well. Can't handle it. Right. So, so great uh, thrillers as long as they're rated something under a PG. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine it doesn't take you long to uh, figure out what's available for you to watch. <laughs> that shortlist would be pretty short. <laughs> it would be. It would be. Already, Rebecca, let's uh, dig into your top three. We always like to drive into the podcast, giving people uh, some really quick insights, some things that have shaped your thinking, that have shaped the way you lead, in this case, the way you um, live your life. So do you want to dive into those top three for us? And then we'll go on some exploration. Yeah, yeah, this was a really nice challenge to be given, actually, Ryan. So, so for me, I think the, the values that I run my business by and live my life by is, um, is how I want to answer this. So the first one is really to be bold. Um, I do believe in challenging yourself to do business differently. I think there are no, there are no new ideas. There's only new ways of doing it. So for me, I think anything that's been a, a habit that's held me back or mindsets that I've made assumptions about or simply, you know, trying to get an idea up, but it didn't work. For me, it's always just been about do it differently. You'll find the way um, if you challenge yourself. So for me, that kind of be bold, challenge yourself to do business differently is my, is my number one. Love it. Um, number two is, is have an impact. So this probably comes down to the fact that I really, really like my sleep. I do have this kind of deep belief that you shouldn't get out of bed if it doesn't make a difference. Um, and I really do believe that. So, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to only work with people I like on work that I like that makes a difference to the people that I work with. So, um, so for me, that is something that I hold very, very sacred because it, 
it tells me that what I'm doing matters. And that sense of purpose, I think, is quite crucial. Um, my last one is have fun. Oh, you know, my, my whole leadership career, I kind of adopted this very serious personality style because I thought that that was where my credibility was really going to come from. I didn't really realize that people could quite clearly see through that. And I've learned that you don't have to be serious to get serious results. So for me, having that little bit of fun and still delivering some serious results with high impact is kind of the sweet spot. You know, the job is, yeah, well, you kind of, you, you feel like you're flying, you know, you feel weightless and effortless when you're having high impact, having fun along the way. It's not really work, is it? It's not. And we've often heard uh, athletes talk about this being in flow, uh, yeah. where it's it's easy, uh, but they're high achieving. Uh, yeah. When you reflect on leadership roles you've had, people that you've worked with, does a, a flow state time spring to mind for you where you were having some fun and creating impact and being bold? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And is it, so is there an example, Rebecca, of when you felt in that? In oh, that zone? When, it, I, when it's been I, working. I suspect it's not a state you can be in all the time where you don't, you can't have you know, all three of those in yeah. abundance entirely. Is there, is there something that pops to mind for you? Of, yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's a really, really big client that I'm working with at the moment who's got a very heavy duty complex change that they're leading through. And I'm, I'm helping them with their engagement piece. And I think that that kind of inflow moment has really happened for the project team where we're so clear on exactly how we want the change to work. We're so clear on our feedback loops that we know that what we imagine is coming true. So we've got that kind of confidence and none of that second guessing paranoia. Um, we know that the work that we're doing is probably the most important work that this company has done for 10 years in terms of their people. Uh, and we're a group that trust each other implicitly. So we've got this really fun factor going on at the same time. So. I'd say despite the fact that this is probably the most high stakes piece of work I've worked on for about four years, it's actually the one that's also the most in flow right across right. the team. Yeah. Right. And that uh, fun piece, you use the word trust. Do you need to have trust in place before you can have fun or does, does the trust follow? after you've created that's a very good question yeah no i think it's an eternal loop i think a little bit of both i think if you're willing to have fun with people you exhibit a level of trust you start there and you'll build more trust as a result Mm -hmm. so i do think actually it's an eternal loop those two and if there was maybe someone listening that goes, you know, I don't feel like I'm naturally the fun person as a leader. Maybe I have a, a more naturally serious demeanor. Uh, I would like to bring some more fun to my team and what they do, but it's not a it's not a natural for me. What guidance would you give them and how they can bring bring more fun to, to what they do and how they lead? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I work with quite a lot of introverts who have fairly similar sense of feedback and you know, fun is, is different for, for everyone. So, you know, your extroverts might want to go and party it up, whereas introverts, that might be the opposite of fun for them. So what I would say is, is don't make assumptions about what everyone's fun looks like. Um, yeah, that, that's probably the first, the first step is, is that don't compare yourself to others because one person's party is another person's book club. So just, why don't you just ask your team what fun looks like for them? and go to where the center of the answer is because that's what's going to work best for everyone. Mm. 
And yeah. I think you've touched on a really important aspect of leadership, and that's the self-awareness piece. And first having self-awareness of self and then awareness of others. Because uh, yeah. I think it is our default setting, right? We tend to go, oh, well, if I like A, B, and C, then everyone else must like A, B, and C as well. Uh, and some of the biggest breakthroughs we've observed with leaders is where they step over that uh, yeah. understanding and go, oh, I realize that the way my team has fun or the way they consume information or how they would like to be briefed on a project can be really quite different for different teams of a, uh, members of a, of a team. So yeah. That, uh, that self-awareness. So maybe yeah, it's a really that, good point. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think, I think almost defaulting to uh, just because I like X, Y, Dad doesn't actually mean that I should assume anybody else likes it. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of pressure on people to be self-aware and aware of the needs of others. And you don't have to be this all-knowing creature. You just have to ask. So, you know, keep it really, really simple. I think a lot of leaders are trained to say things in statements. You know, we should have fun. Let's organize a party. You know, let's, let's go for lunch. Um, and I, I would just say really simply, one simple, simple trick is just flip your statement into a question. So first question, should we have more fun? What might that look like? Let me uh, maybe play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, I've seen a different interpretation of going, you know what, actually people don't come to work to have fun. What they do is they come to work to be part of high-performing teams and they get the the value and the sense of achievement by being part of a high high-performing team, but it doesn't have to be all um, lunches out and, and barbecues. How would you, how do you maybe think about the uh, bringing, maybe it's joy as much as fun or sense of involvement and collective nature in the team? How would you shape that with uh, people you work with? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I think, I think it comes down to your, what you'd called flow. So how do we get the team to feel a little bit lighter? So the weightlessness that goes along with having fun and performing is really the sweet spot that we're looking for. So, um, yeah, I don't work with leaders who think that work is just fun because performance does come first. But what we do find with a lot of leaders that I work with is that by creating this, this joy or this levity, uh, this ability to have some fun whilst you're working hard and hitting really difficult goals actually accelerates people's performance anyway. So it's when you're dragged down by taking it all very, very seriously, you actually do put a cap on your performance. And by taking a little bit of a more amused view and to hold it a little bit more lightly, you actually will find that you can achieve more with it because you don't constrain yourself by seriousness. You become more creative with more humor. I like it. And one of your areas of expertise, Rebecca, is what you term the, the B-suite or the maybe the middle management or the operational managers in, a, in an organization. Do you feel like it's the role of the, the B-suite manager to uh, almost be a, uh, what do we call it, an intermediary between maybe some of the other pressures in the business and then how they work with their team? So as an example, they might be working in an organization where uh, the CEO is under significant pressure from the board. The board is under significant pressure from the shareholders to deliver results. <laughs> you're, you're nodding knowingly like, oh, I think I've, I've seen this before. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe the, the exec team are then uh, pushing down onto their uh, operational managers going, hey, look, we have to hit all these performance criteria, get it done, get it done, hit the metrics, KPIs, let's go, let's go. Uh, maybe without the people experience or um the understanding of what drives engagement <laughs> it might be uh too too minimalist than their metrics 
what's the what do you perceive as the role of the the B suite, that operational manager, to kind of shape their own team's culture and maybe be somewhat of a buffer between uh, what's going on above them? Hmm, they absolutely are. They absolutely are the buffer. So the B suite is difficult. Middle management is really, really notoriously tough. And the key reason for that is that you're both a leader and a follower at once, and you're pretty much the only layer of the organization that genuinely is that. So it becomes incredibly difficult because you're carrying both agendas and they're often conflicting agendas. So you're quite right. The executive will say, achieve these amazingly ambitious targets and do it with less people and less money. Yep. And that's, that's their job and that's the pressure they're under. So you go, yup, okay, you walk out of the room and you go, oh my God, how are we going to achieve this? Then you walk into another room and you walk into a room with your team and perhaps a union or some employee advocates in the room. And the conversation that they're having with you is the diametric opposite. Your people are under too much pressure. They're beginning to burn out. We need to slow down, do less, deprioritize, get more headcount. So that's their agenda. These two agendas don't meet in the middle. You are the point at which they meet in the middle. That puts you under immense pressure. So you have to be this kind of neutral connector. You have to be able to represent the the interests of both parties to the other party without being seen as disloyal, which often happens, you know, which team are you with? And it's like, well, actually, I'm trying to make you one team from the middle here, which is very, very challenging. What a novel concept. Yeah, I know, right? But it is, it's very, very challenging. So it's no surprise that burnout in the middle management is three times higher than any other cohort in business today. That is no surprise to me. It is no surprise to me that one in 10 leaders are actually thinking about quitting leadership. And that number is growing every year. So if people in middle management are feeling like it's tough, it is tough, right? That's just the reality. And this connector and translator role And this neutral negotiator and arbitrator role that we play means that we're constantly on and constantly adjusting who we are, how we position things and what perspective we're coming from. And that can be exhausting. That's before we've even sat down and done any real work, right? Possibly before we've even got out of pyjamas. Well, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, And whilst I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek from the start, it's the... Uh, we do hear of you know people that are they're immediately bombarded with more work pressures. You know they wake up the first thing they do is they see their their mobile's got another fifty unread emails that have come in overnight. Um, there's the presentation to be done today. Maybe they're in those uh, diametrically opposed meetings in, in both directions today. So it can start shaping up like a, a tough day ahead. What advice would you give for someone uh, maybe that is in that? that moment right there haven't even left the house yet and already starting to go oh my god um, do I really want to be doing this how would you how would you guide them to to deal with that moment yeah the sense of overwhelm is very easy to ambush us at the most inopportune moments so uh, I can remember having one of my first big overwhelming moments while I was sat outside the board um, in my last major employer and I just had a little look stupidly at my diary for the afternoon and the afternoon was more frightening than the morning and I'm sat outside for the board and I thought oh god you know today is really bad and I started forward thinking and panicking about my next meeting and I lost focus on my board meeting which of course exacerbated my sense of overwhelm and panic so my advice to people is to compartmentalize your day so sometimes not looking at your diary can be your best friend Other times, it's really, really important for you to 
be quite clear on what the most important thing is that you need to achieve today. What we tend to do is live our lives in endless to-do lists, right? You know, 13 page to-do lists that just get longer and longer. Um, and actually, I think probably the most profound thing that I ever did was turn my list into a matrix because it just helped me to understand that when the overwhelm hits, I just retreat to one box and one box is all I'm going to do today. And that's all I'm going to think about right now. And I switch off all the rest of the background noise just till I've got myself back under control. And Rebecca, do you use the Eisenhower matrix or something similar? Yeah. So strategic prioritization matrix, which is the Eisenhower on steroids. Yeah. Okay. Might have to uh, look that one up. Could be a good. Uh, and what's the what's the name of the box that you focus on, or what what are the traits of the box that you focus on when it's when you're feeling that overwhelm? The traits of the box that I focus on tend to be my immediate sphere of control stuff. So classically, the the quick wins box, if you like, the space where you don't have to rely on a lot of other people to get it done. You can kind of do it yourself. It's not going to take a long time. So you get that sense of progress and achievement. You know, you just want a couple of things where you go tick, tick, tick. Yay, I feel amazing. Now I'll pick on something a bit harder. So this sense of retreating to simpler, easier tasks is actually a well-known uh, centering exercise that a lot of quite ancient religions have used to just get your sense of control back. So Covey talks about it in his sphere of control, sphere of concern work. Um, and in fact, uh, there's a very, very famous Indian billionaire who talks about when he's feeling a bit overwhelmed managing his enormous empire. The one thing he does is he puts the phone down, face down and on silent, and he does the washing up. And in the 11 minutes that it takes him to do the washing up, dry everything and put it all away, he's got his sense of control back mm -hmm. because he just did one thing that he could do, do really well from start to finish. And the minute you do that, you find that momentum begets momentum. You know, you've ticked off one task, you tackle another one and you tackle another and another and another until you're back on your roll. How often have we all felt that sense of overwhelm and when we're very much in the moment without a lot of perspective, the thing that we're focused on feels like it's the biggest thing in the world and it's a you know, complete disaster. Uh, 11 minutes of perspective uh, come back to it and you're like, oh, actually, I've got a different way that I could approach it. Or now that I've got a perspective, I realize that no, no one's going to die here and uh, yeah. know, we can actually uh, deal with it. So, yeah, I think that's great, um, great guidance. I'd like to circle back, Rebecca, to your one of your top three, which was the impact. And uh, I think you appropriately said, you know, why would you bother getting out of bed if you're not going to create create impact? What's, what's your barometer? How do you figure out when you're creating uh, impact? And particularly around this, you know, middle management roles where they do potentially feel like they're being pulled in all, all lots of different directions. They maybe don't have the ultimate say on what needs to be done by when and by, by who, their influences, but not, so they may, may feel a lack of control. What's the barometer around impact and how do you find your sense of impact and, you know, regardless of the role that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it's the it's the classic solution one. So a lot of middle managers, because of that sense of always being told what to do, and they, you know, they've been trained into you just execute stuff, we'll tell you what to do, you work out how to do it. That's kind of that's the difference between a, a senior manager and a middle manager. The, the big difference is that you don't have to accept that reality. So if you don't have your own priorities, you're always at the mercy of other people's priorities. So you can't possibly answer the question, what does impact look like 
because you haven't set your own benchmark. So it's really, really important, even as a, you know, even when you're feeling quite disempowered, when you're feeling completely under the pump and lacking autonomy, it's actually really important that you do establish what your priorities look like, because that helps you to have a spectrum upon which you can plot what high impact versus low impact looks like, because otherwise you're trying to judge impact in a vacuum. So set some parameters for yourself, set them with your boss, set them with your peers, because they're very useful at helping you understand the, the boundaries that you work within. And then within those boundaries, set your priorities. Because as soon as you've got those, you'll find a couple of things happen. One is that you can measure progress and success far more easily because you've put a, a spectrum down, you know, you've put a barometer down that's got measurements on it. Um, and two is your ability to push back suddenly skyrockets because you actually have some priorities. So if somebody asks you to throw them out and do something else, you've got a why and this is how it fits in kind of response that is very logical, very well considered. And about seven out of 10 times, it actually works to stop people from turfing more work onto your team. 100% agree. And I certainly have seen that uh... Uh, actually that person's leader has often forgotten what they've asked them to do last week or yesterday or last month. So actually coming, being able to come back to the table and go, look, last time we discussed this, we identified that these were the top three priorities. I'm happy to drop one of those. Which one would you like me to drop? Exactly. And then with that with that reference point, the leader goes, oh no, actually those, those three things we uh, didn't know, actually they are the priorities. Stick with those and then we'll come back to this one later and I'll, or I'll find a different solution. So yeah, that is, that is gold. Uh, yeah, as, uh, it really advice. is. Is it's the most beautifully sophisticated way of saying no to more work. And that's actually a trick that we all need in middle management because the work will keep becoming more and the resources with which to do it will keep becoming less. And that's a reality we have to work with. So our ability to manage that nexus becomes the skill point. Great, great insights. Uh, I read a article a couple of weeks ago now of a CEO of a startup in Silicon Valley that had tracked uh, every 15 minutes of his time in his first two years of his job. And uh, there were some uh, things in there that uh, didn't resonate with me, like how many hours a week he decided that he needed to work. But one of the really interesting insights he had was he had ditched to-do lists and he managed everything in his calendar. Mm -hmm. and really his insight was the problem with to-do lists is they're not time-bound, so you just continually add more and more on, you feel like you never get to it, uh, and it was a bit around that priority management where once when something came up, he'd go, well, let me look at my calendar, when can I fit that in, I can, I, and then I can make priority decisions about whether I'm going to take that thing out to put this thing, this thing in, and he said that really helped him shape his engagement with his team because he always just used to go, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I can take that. Yes, we can we can make that happen. Yeah, we'll get that, get that sorted um, without really any sense of exactly where the priority was or was the yeah. time available. Yeah, so, um, yeah, just another that was great. That's a great story. Yeah, that's a great story. And it, it does come down to knowing what your capacity looks like. We, we talk a lot about it in organisations. You know, outside of, um, you know, billable hours organisations, we're typically not very good at measuring capacity. So it's actually, it becomes, we, we talk about it a lot. We go, oh, my team's at capacity. You know, my, my team are stretched thin, creaking at the seams. But if somebody actually said, well, what's your ratio of work widgets to human beings? Most of the time, most leaders will be really hard pressed to say, well, I know what it is. So the one thing that we do have in terms of our ability to manage and measure is time. 
So when we think about, well, if there's 40, 45 hours in the week or whatever it is that you decide is the right amount of time, I dare say your CEO was probably closer to 100, but let's not go there. Um, you know, when we've got that kind of time, or perhaps I've got 10 people on the team where I've got 30 hours a week and five people on the team where I've got 40 hours a week. Well, this is my, my assessment of how long this piece of work is going to take. Well, I've run out of hours. And when you start looking at, at it like that, then when you go back and have conversations about capacity and planning for getting things done, you actually can see exactly where the white space is and where the white space isn't. And that becomes a much, much more useful way of managing your team's capacity and their resilience and their sustained effort than having these, what look like ad hoc arguments about taking on more work. Agree. And I think it also leads you to ask higher quality questions. So you might, for example, go, we don't have enough capacity to do that project in its current spec. So what would be the 80% of the project that would deliver the most value? Could we just could we just do that 80% and then push the next 20% of it? of it out could we yeah. deprioritize something else we're working on because we could do that but if you don't if you don't ask if you don't have that insight you don't ask those good questions before you don't get better answers that's exactly right because without that without the um presenting yourself with the constraint of time which a calendar does provide you for it's very difficult for you to negotiate because you don't negotiate when you've got limitless resources Right. If time and money was no object, you'd say yes to everything and you could deliver on everything forever. Hurrah. How lovely. But, you know, the constraint is real. So when you put yourself in a in a box like a calendar, you do start to ask triple threat questions. You do start to say, well, does that need to be delivered by then? What if we could move it out to next quarter? Does it need to be delivered to that standard? So to your point, is 80 percent good enough? Um, you know, does it need to can we actually afford to deliver it with the people that we have or do we need to spend more money to get that quality in this time frame because yeah if i had five more people you'd suddenly see a lot more white space in the diary mm -hmm. so really important to to be quite specific um with your negotiation of expectations i've seen this as scale excuse me when i worked in a uh, corporate where if you go and ask any team in the organization, are they busy and are they at capacity? Everyone says, yes, I am. In fact, I'm over capacity. And my observation is the way that not all, but some corporates uh, figure out really where just inefficiency has crept into their business is they just totally reduce the number of people in a in a zone, uh, suddenly that report that someone always spent two hours a, a week uh, doing that no one actually read doesn't get missed, so that gets that gets chopped out, and then they then backfill, right? I'm not and I'm not saying that it's a, a a sound approach, but I think what it does highlight is inefficiency creeps into uh, all businesses over time, and it's really really hard to stay on top of that inefficiency and make sure that you are only working on the things that create impact uh, or deliver value. To the, to the organization so yeah. if you can stay cognizant of that as a leader um, then maybe you get to keep delivering value without having to go through the pain of uh, <laughs> immense restructures yes. well it's so true and look whether you're running a big program of work or whether you're running a desk as an individual contributor it's actually really important to go through a pretty regular reprioritizing exercise and actually map down what are you doing so if you kept a diary for a week you know to, to your point 15 minute slots what am i actually doing and if you plotted those tasks into high value, low value, you know, can be done quickly, can be done slowly, you'd 
pretty much be having a look at the balance of your work and you'd find out quite quickly where you're spending your less valuable time and where you should be spending your high valuable time. So I think it's a really, really important exercise. We do it with, with most of my clients, we do it pretty much every quarter to four months. Uh, and as I say, whether you're running an individual desk or whether you're running teams of teams, it's still a really important exercise to do because you're right, inefficiency creeps in. But I think the reason that inefficiency creeps in is because assumptions linger. So where your boss has said, oh, I really like that, you know, I'd really like that report. I'd like eight pages. Can you add another page to it? And I'd like it every two weeks. That's probably only true for about eight weeks. But four years later, you're still doing it. Yeah, because we didn't do a reprioritizing every every quarter and just check that these things are still valuable. The other uh, good tool for that one is just to not produce the report or start taking pages out and see if anyone misses them. <laughs> that's, that's also a good experiment. I love a good experiment every now and again. Just stop doing something and see if anyone complains. <laughs> in, your, uh, in your book, uh, Impact, 10 Ways to Level Up Your Leadership, if you were to say, look, there's just these, this one page or this one theme or this one chapter that you absolutely have to read. Like if you don't have time to read anything else, just read this one. Is there an area of the book that you like? That's that, that I know it's all gold, of course, Rebecca, but is there, is there gold with diamond studs in it as well? <laughs> um, ah, great question. So the book covers off three chapters, right? One is controlling the pace of work. Another is using the space to think. Uh, and the third is making the case, so influencing in four different directions. It really depends on the level of seniority that you are. But if I was to say, generally speaking, as a mid-level leader, the place that we, we typically start is control the pace. Because once you've got a little bit of a control over the work that's coming in, the work that's going out, managing expectations and managing your priorities, once you've got that, you can clear a little bit of space to think more strategically. And by thinking more strategically, start influencing more successfully. So I think finding a little bit of room in your life, creating that bit of white space is probably the place to start. Is it the most important? Is it the most impactful? Probably not. Influencing is probably the most high impact area, but the critical enabler is controlling the pace of work. So you've got room to do that. I like it. You you managed to uh, identify that all areas of the book were vitally important whilst positioning one at the front, but really saying the others were equally important. So well I'm done. Glad to, I'm really glad to see uh, that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think, um, <laughs> you know, should you uh, move beyond your current career, I think uh, politics is calling. <laughs> uh, okay, being being bold uh, was one of the uh, top three that you you highlighted. What's um, give me an example of when you've been bold? Oh wow, uh, lots. So the, the oh wow wasn't that hard. It's hard to pick one. So um, being bold. Hmm. Well, um, starting my own business under the age of thirty. So as a, a European financial markets headhunter, that was quite fun. Uh, moving lock, stock and barrel, giving everything up and coming to Australia from London. That was quite fun, quite bold. Uh, starting all over again here was was tough. It was tough, but was really a brilliant challenge. And then starting up Bold HR on my own again, um, you know, at, at, in my 40s, that was quite bold too. So I think, I think I'm not shy of a couple of bold moves. I think... Um, 
when I think about boldness, I think about considered risk. You know, I don't think it's necessarily bravery, which I can sometimes see as less considered risk. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I am a risk taker, so, but, but not a foolish one. Yes. So for me, boldness is a, is a very deliberate maneuver. Um, and those, those will be the kinds of things that I've done often to myself and to my family <laughs> to, um, to do business differently. Yeah. Like it, and you've made me think about one of uh, Brene Brown's uh, calls to action, which is choose courage over comfort. Um, and I, I align that with being bold, right? It's not about being stupid. It's not about taking um, gambling uh, risks where you really have no idea of the outcome, uh, but being uh, choosing the the courage where it's it's easy to stay in the comfort zone. It would have been uh, maybe really easy for you to stay in a corporate, keep collecting the check, uh, move around the corporate structure, do what needs to be done but you chose to be bold, start your own. You saw a better uh, outcome for you and others in doing that. So uh, it's always good to see people being bold, choosing courage over comfort. Yeah. Well Look, I think you. so. And I, I love that phrase by Brené as well. I'd probably add to that, you know, have, um, do it with purpose. So I think boldness without purpose, I don't know about you, but I'd find that person quite annoying. Um, you know, being being brave without being deliberate can be seen as quite rash. So for me, I think there is a really, really important balance between um, considered risks, and that yeah, that then means that if you take a courageous action or a bold, make a bold move, um, you've done it with a deliberate outcome in mind. And I think that's really important. That sense of deliberateness in terms of how we operate, particularly in this level of leadership, is really critical. Is there someone that you've worked with that you feel that uh, under your uh, encouragement and tutelage uh, chose to be bold and how that panned out for them? <laughs> and, you know, very interested in uh, where it didn't pan out as well as where it was a, a raging success. <laughs> well, well, I'd say the raging successes are, are many, are many. So I, I run a program called Level Up and that's got about 40 to 50 leaders on it at the moment or at any given time. And right now, more than 50% of them have been promoted, some of those people twice in the one year that they've worked with me. Now that's not because they worked with me, it's because they're brilliant, but it's also because they've made some really bold considered moves that perhaps they wouldn't have done without the confidence that I helped them to have. Um, so what I find in there that's really, really interesting, you know, for example, I've had a lady who came from a very, very different industry, take a, a massive upwards and sideways step completely out of her comfort zone into an area that she's never worked in before as the general manager. So she went up two levels hierarchically and one domain across. So fish out of water. Oh my God. Yeah. The horror. It was a big move, right? A really, really big, bold move. But when she sat down and wrote, you know, when, when we sat down and we kind of went through the pros and cons and what really was the risk as opposed to the perceived risk, she knew she had the sponsorship. She knew she had the behaviors. She knew that this role was finally senior enough that she didn't need to be an expert anymore. So she finally could shed the expert in favor of the leader. And that's a big shift. So she took a considered risk based on those things. It's panned out brilliantly absolutely brilliantly she's lining up her she's lining up right now for her third promotion in less than 18 months awesome, awesome. yeah what a great uh, great really story good. 
Superb. Uh, Now, Rebecca, I'm sure you have piqued the interest of a number of our listeners. So uh, where can they connect with you? Where can they uh, get a copy of your book? Uh, Give us some insights. Yeah, all of those things on boldhr.com.au or come and find me on LinkedIn and say hi. Fabulous. And we will uh, put the link to Bold HR. Uh, nice, easy domain name to remember, but we will put the link in the show notes and uh, also your, your LinkedIn profile on there as well. Um, Rebecca, any closing thoughts from you? Oh, I think, look, middle management is tough, but just stay deliberate with everything that you do. You know, focus on the things that sweep you away and getting that center of control back. And I think you'll start strong from there. Yeah, would wholeheartedly agree, Rebecca. And we see this, obviously, with the people we work with as well, that um, so often they are technical experts that end up in, in middle management. Mm. And uh, there are some um, simple uh, and, and simple in the fact that they are easy to implement uh, structures, frameworks that you can give people that can really just make the, the role of leadership so much more enjoyable and deliver such greater, greater outcomes. So, mm. um, yeah. Thank you for your time, Rebecca. We appreciate your uh, insights. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, pleasure, Ryan. Thanks so much. That was a great chat. Cheers.